was good. Coburn, thank you. for. Uh, that was worth the price of admission right there. I'd go home. But we're not going to. Um, so if we don't know each other, uh, my name's Aaron, and I serve as one of the pastors uh, of Commonwealth here in Knoxville. And um, it still weirds me out to say that I'm a pastor. Closer to the face. All right, thank you. Uh, still weirds me out to say that I'm a pastor. In some ways, it makes sense. My father was a pastor. His father was a pastor. His father was a pastor. Uh, but if you would have asked me as a young man if I was going to be a pastor one day, uh, I would have used some very choice and colorful language to tell you in no uncertain terms, that is the one thing I will not be. Uh, God did get a hold of my life. Jesus chased me down and tackled me with his grace uh, as a young man. But coming back around on this organized religion thing would take quite a while. Uh, my first forays into vocational ministry was uh, Youth for Christ. It was perfect. I could hang out with kids who knew nothing about Jesus and didn't have to go to church. And that was kind of my setup. I was like, this is perfect. Uh, my next gig was in global missions, and it was the same thing. We could travel the world, share with people about Jesus, and never have to step foot in church. But my Damascus Road experience happened uh, when my sister, Rachel, uh, found herself uh, wrestling with meth addiction and found her way into rehab. And at that time, my dad, uh, he was a youth pastor for 26 years, so kind of legend status, you know, in the youth pastor world. I think those guys and gals stick around for like, I don't know, 18 months on average these days. But he did it for 26 years and uh, always was the flaming evangelist uh, wave maker, which I absolutely love about him. But he was working for this upper middle class suburban church for the first time in his life, making some real money. Uh, we never really had any. And then we found our way to rehab with my sister to try to get free of, of this thing that was on her back. And while we're there, we met all these people um, that were from all different walks of life, incredible people, but the one thing they had in common is this addiction to meth. And when we were there, uh, we learned a couple of things that would change kind of my story and our stories forever. And that was, we learned that when it comes to meth addiction, it's like less than 3% recovery rate, right? And so we're in this room with these incredible people. And behind us is a bigger room than this was from floor to ceiling, these black coffee mugs. And at the end of their experience, they would paint a mug that was representative of their journey and their story. And anytime somebody who had gone through that program died of an overdose, they would hang another black mug on this wall. Right? And so they were saying, like, if you don't take this seriously, even if you do take this seriously, the odds are stacked against you, right? And so we knew, man, if God doesn't do something miraculous in these people's lives, they've got no hope. I mean, they've got little to no chance of making it. And the second thing we learned is that most of them were going to be coming back to Lincoln when they got out of rehab, which is where we were. And we couldn't imagine inviting these people, you know, with their colorful language uh, and, and, you know, four-letter words and smoking every 10 minutes, like, to this posh suburban church that my parents were a part of. You know, it's like they would get the message real fast, even if nobody said a word, that you don't belong here. And my dad would never recover from that. And so we set out to start a community, a church, with them and for them. And we were right downtown, 
and it was, I will share, I will tell you, it was a, it was a mess. It was such a mess. You had the University of Nebraska you could hit with a football in this direction, the homeless shelter you could hit with a football in this direction, and that was most of our church, college kids and homeless people. And God started to do stuff that, to me, I just had never seen before. You know, we got to see dozens of these young people begin coming alive in Christ and coming alongside these people who had nowhere to live. And we started seeing business owners begin to employ folks that were otherwise mostly unemployable, beginning to teach them life skills. Uh, we saw people rally around and help them get off the streets and furnish their apartments. And just this incredible, beautiful thing. And when I say it was a mess, like it was a, it was a mess. I mean, I remember some of my first sermons, like homeless people fist fighting in the middle, you know, or arguing with me, you know, like bantering, like, you know, it's like, you're full of crap. <laughs> like, Thank you, sir. Um, and, you know, it's just like, you know, like people would just be, you know, we had a four bars in this theater that we met in. And, of course, you know, people off the street were always trying to steal bottles of liquor. And they would. You know, it's like, Gary, you got to put the Jack Daniels back. That's not yours. You know, last night that was going for 200 bucks. You can't afford that, Gary. Also, why do you have a cake cutter, Gary? Where do you even get that? You got to put the cake cutter back. You know, I mean, it was just... It was insane, it was, it was a mess, but it was a beautiful mess. And for me, you know, it just, it, it wrecked me for life. You know, and I thought, as imperfect as all of this is, if, if this is what the church can be, if these are the kinds of stories that we get to be a part of, if this is what it looks like when the kingdom starts to break in in our midst, I can't imagine giving my life to, to anything else. And so for the last 20 years, that's, that's essentially what we've done. And so, you know, if you know me, uh, you may be familiar with that story. What most people don't know about that story, though, uh, is the cost that was involved, and particularly for my, my father and for my mother. Uh, you don't have to be a sociologist to figure, if you've got a church full of college kids and homeless people, the money just ain't going to be there. Uh, and it never was. And I remember... I remember my dad, you know, working in his, in his office, and I remember at one point, like, he had five checks, like, taped to the wall behind the monitor, and they were paychecks that the church couldn't afford to pay him. And he was waiting for the, the money to clear so he could cash one in that was, you know, months old. Um, I remember along the way, we would have people who would be so, they were so excited about what we saw God doing in our midst, and they had resources. They were well-funded, well-endowed, People and they were willing to stick around if if they just if we just changed this or changed that. And my dad uh, wouldn't he he wouldn't waver. Um, I remember him every uh, every Sunday morning uh, every morning, but including Sundays. Part of the way that we could afford rent in this theater is he would use also the janitor. And I remember him cleaning toilets before everybody arrived. And I remember our elder team arguing with him, like, you know, there's better use of your time. You need, to, you need to delegate that. And I remember my dad saying, uh, don't you ever suggest that cleaning toilets is beneath me. This is the work. This is what we do. And, you know, after this incredible thing we saw happen, if you fast forward 10 years later, that beautiful church uh, closed its doors. But the kingdom ripples 
are all over the U.S., where God took people from that community and started all kinds of, of new wineskins and fresh works around the country. But my dad and my mom, when it was all said and done, were barely hanging on by a thread. And, I've all, and, and he was looking for other things along the way to supplement. And I've often wondered, you know, um, we, were, we were a part of seeing God doing something fresh, but we were depending on an old model that really ended up being almost like a, a prison for my father. And on the other side of rehab and all this stuff, it, it eventually led to their bankruptcy. And we honestly, there were seasons where we didn't even know if the marriage was going to make it. Now, this is a redemptive story. It's not a sad story. So my parents are as in love as they've ever been. He fell back in love with ministry. He's still doing it. Uh, my parents are amazing. My dad's awesome. But uh, I share that story because, you know, my dad had this, was faced with this dilemma over and over again is if, am I going to be faithful to the vision and call that God has put on my life and potentially financially lose everything? Or am I going to change the vision in order to pay the bills? And I think we find ourselves in a cultural moment where more and more churches and more and more leaders are going to find themselves asking very similar questions. Uh, Charlie and I were just talking this last week about a report that just came out, the median church size in the United States. What was it, in the 40s, 40-some people? Right? And so for most, the average church uh, is going to increasingly struggle to be able to pay a full-time guy or gal to shepherd them. Right? And, and, I mean, for those of us who have kind of been in this world and asking questions, I mean, we, we've seen it coming. And then COVID just kind of fast-forwarded everything, right? You've maybe heard, like, what we were spending per baptism pre-COVID. Uh, if you add up all the programs, the salaries, the budgets, the buildings, for how many people we're actually baptizing in the faith, before COVID, we were spending $1.2 million per baptism in the American church. It's not sustainable, right? In any other business, we would be out of business, and we've watched as 25% of the church has left the American church in the last few years, and they're not coming back. So even our own are finding the stories that we are living uncaptivating and longing for more. And I think in this cultural moment, right, we can either mourn this and go, man, it's a sign of the times, increasingly post-Christian culture, people just don't believe and don't value the same things like they did once before, or we can see it as a gift where I think that God is reshuffling the deck, reallocating resources. And in a culture where most increase, more and more churches are not able to pay professionals to provide them with the ministry or to do most of it, it is now a level playing field where we, it's no longer a luxury, a luxury. We need the priesthood of all believers to live into their to their calling and to step into who uh, God has created them uh, to be. So I think that is a cultural moment that we're in. And I think there is an in, there's an incredible gift in that. And so this is part of the story that we're living for those of us who are part of Commonwealth. Um, by the way, I'm not against full-time pastors like Dave and Bart are two of the greatest. Uh, for us though, we got to a point where we just knew we, some communities can afford it. We're not one of those, right? We're at that point where 
we can't live into our values and vision and pay a bunch of full-time staff. And so we've been, we've been kind of reimagining even what it means to, to be a minister of the gospel. And so part of that for me, uh, you know, has involved stepping into the marketplace so that we could reallocate the kingdom resources that God has entrusted to our little community. And I'll tell you, uh, one of the biggest birds, it is, I will tell you this, it has been the most like freeing thing I have ever done in 20 years of ministry. I feel more free as a minister of the gospel, as a pastor, than I ever have. You know, like I, you know, when you're, when you're depending on your paycheck, on the generosity of the people in the room, it's very hard to not have an agenda. It's very hard not to think like, man, what if we lose them? What was the giving last week? What happens next month if this family leaves? I don't care about that anymore. <laughs> it's like, I love them, but I'm free to just love the people that God has put in front of us. And, and I felt an incredible burden knowing the percentage of our budget that was going to payroll and knowing the, the fields that are ripe for harvest in our backyard. And so it's been an incredible gift as we move towards uh, having all pastoral staff will all be in the marketplace. Um, we've been able to drop our payroll, our overhead, uh, 65% uh, just in the last year. Um, we're, able, we're able to, uh, our goal for next year is for 25% of our resources to go to kingdom causes uh, in our city, benevolence, meeting needs. Um, one of the things that we've done, you know, for us, like, we're talking about the priesthood of all believers, right? Like we are all ministers of the gospel. God has set us in a context. He has surrounded us with people with great intentionality. So for us, we're like, hey, God has entrusted this common purse to us, common wealth, if you will. It's, this is ours. You're on the front lines of mission. What if we reallocate these resources and push them to our microchurches, right? So we've established a fund where our microchurches can apply for grants and we'll put money in their hands to step into the needs and the opportunities that, that are in front of them. And I, I will say this, I've never had less margin in my life. Um, you know, when Megan and I are working until, often until 6 p.m., and then we've got kids stuff all the time. We've got two teenage girls. You can pray for us on that one. Um, hosting people in our home, I mean, it's nonstop. And then Sunday responsibilities. But I don't think I've ever felt more alive to be able to be a part of that and to see some of the stories that are represented in this room, the Cockrums, for those of you who'll be here tomorrow morning, watch God put this call in their life. Uh, Eli, when God put this vision in his heart to plant this communal space in South Knoxville where we don't have many safe communal gathering places, like you just needed to get out of the way. That was a man that was not gonna be stopped. And, and Heather was gonna ride or die. Like they did it together. Watching God move in Heather's life, who I think, I think Heather would tell you she probably fought me harder than anybody on this missional stuff when we began. Uh, and she'll tell stories about pretending to be on her phone when she got off work to walk in her home so she didn't have to talk to neighbors, right? Uh, that's where we began together. But man, when, when the spirits that are working in her, you just needed to get out of the way. Like you couldn't stop her. Some of our fav my favorite stories of blessing people and showing compassion and living on mission from our community have come from her, <laughs> you know? Uh, watching Common Soil, God bring Mark and Christina together and they're looking at buying property in West Knoxville, starting a community garden, a place where people can, can work the land together and find community on mission. I mean, I could just go down the list. Like that's where the action that is at, right? 
right? And when you get pe people starting to get like, man, you know, quoting our good friend Stephen Barr, that your dinner table has a potential to be a far more powerful ministry tool than any pulpit ever will be. And when people start to get that, and then you begin to align the kingdom resources that God has entrusted to you in those ways, I'm not sure that there's any limitation on what God can do with that. You know, and so here's, here's what I would say, right? A couple words. Uh, for those of us who are responsible for leading ministries, I think we too need to shift what we imagine when it comes to leadership, uh, when it comes to pastoring, when it, becomes, when it comes to church planting. Uh, when I got into the church planting game, uh, you, <laughs> many of us have been through those boot camps and training and assessments. They're looking for a particular type of person, namely a charismatic leader that can articulate well, raise funds, and gather a crowd. Um, that's a relatively small group of people. And sometimes we don't even get around to character, God forgive us, right? But that's a, that's a small percentage of people. When you start rethinking what the church can actually be, and that church can actually be in a back alleyway, or at a pub, or around your table, or in a carport, or around a fire pit, and that you don't have to be a compelling communicator, or a preacher, or a writer, you don't need a seminary degree, all of a sudden, everybody can play, and the church can pop up anywhere, right? And so we need to, 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 to table that crap that we did in the name of Jesus for so long, Oh, Dave, so like, we know this, right? It's just like, God forgive us. We participated in that for way too long. Uh, I think God is mixing things up and reshuffling the deck in some really beautiful ways. And the people, the men, the women, I think and if there's always surprises, and the surprises are the best part. You know, like every church plant we've been a part of, there's always people you're like, oh, they're going to be incredible. They're going to be champions of the cause, and they flame out and flake out, and they're gone. And there's always the people in the room, it's like you'd never pick them for your spiritual kickball team, you know, on the, on the playground. And they become such champions of the cause. And you're like, who am I, who am I to judge? We just need to keep inviting and casting seed and see what God does. And I think he's going to continually surprise us. For the rest of us, uh, I would just say this. You, if you're not, if you're not paid as a pastor, you're in a great spot, and you are the future of the church. The paid ministry gig, there will always be some, but generally speaking, they're going away. Um, in churches of 40, you're just not going to have a bunch of professionals with seminary degrees, and I'm not sure that that's what God is looking for, right? And your moment is now. I think you, you need to stop waiting for permission. You already have it. You've been, you have been called by God, commissioned by Jesus, and filled with the Spirit. You've got everything to need, you need to step into what God has for you right now. And our cities, our neighborhoods, our unbelieving friends, struggling friends need you to. And the last thing I would say is I know for the first time in my life, I'm beginning to understand the lack of margin that comes with working a full-time job and managing a family and being responsible to keep those kids alive and everything else. And the last thing I would just say is this, like I get the lack of margin, but whatever you got, it's enough. Like God will work with whatever you got. 
You know, we, we never, if you had asked us like what mission would look like for our family five years ago when we stepped into this thing, I never would have guessed that we'd have essentially a youth ministry of teenagers, you know, living out of our house. Uh, I don't even really like kids that much, <laughs> you know, like we're not the youth pastor types, but that's, that's become our context as we have two teenage girls, you know, and we've got these stories of these kids who are in our space who do not have safe homes, right, where there is all kinds of abuse and neglect and addiction and str struggling with, you know, sexual identity and the like. And so for us, in our margin, you know, in our context, uh, stepping into these stories has become just part of our mission. Never planned it, but that's where God has us, and that's enough. You know, we both work remote, and I, I carried some guilt on that when I stepped into the marketplace because I'm like, surely it would make more kingdom sense for me to, like, have boots on the ground where I'm around other people, not behind four screens, you know, for the afternoon or whatever. But one of the things that we're finding, so we place travel nurses, and travel nurses go on assignment, generally speaking, alone. And lo and behold, you end up becoming not just a recruiter, not just an advocate, you become a friend and a counselor. Uh, recruiters tend to attract kind of your used car salesman type that will use people, abuse people. And we've got caregivers and, and other recruiters that are planning trips just to come be with us. You know, we're getting to share about Jesus over the phone, who knew, you know what I mean? And it's like, yeah, that's probably not what I would have driven, like drawn up on paper, but that's what we've got. That's our margin, that's our context, and that's enough. And God is using it. So all that to say, um, I think we just need to put the pin back in the shame grenade. Like you don't have to feel ashamed for whatever margin or lack thereof you have. God will work with whatever you got. So here's what I'd love to do is I would love to push the conversation to the tables and speak to what is what does this look like for you right now in this season? What kind of margin do you have or lack thereof? And who are the people that got us placed in your circle? And if you have time, I'd love to know too, how hard is it uh, for you to believe this? What we're saying about the future of the church, the priesthood of all believers and your role in it. Sound good? All right, ready, set, go. Go.